0: You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Uh, on this show, we interview individuals who have triumph stories, stories of victory, hope, anyone that's overcome any type of difficult circumstance and lived to tell about it. Uh, I do a lot of recovery addicts on here. I have uh, my good friend, Baltimore John. Um, he's obviously from Baltimore. What's up, John? What up, what up, what up? What's going on? So
1: let's just start with your story, man. How did it all begin? Sure. So uh, I'm an addict named John. You know, so first off, I know there is this big, I don't want to say it's a controversy, so to speak, mm-hmm. but there's this thing that I've noticed lately. I see TV shows or people talk about it that you shouldn't identify as an addict because then you're like almost stigmatizing yourself yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. and it's like, look, calm down. Like, Mm -hmm. the reason why I always introduce myself as an addict named John, because they told me if I don't remember what I am, it doesn't matter who I am. Hmm. Like, I have to keep up front that I have this addiction. And, you know, they always talk about the obsession, compulsion, the total self-centeredness. And really, for me, identifying in that sense is just reminding myself of my humanness, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's real easy to get caught up in the stigma of what people think addicts are. If you identify as an addict, people automatically assume, well, you know, you're on a park bench. You know, you're going to steal from me. If you come to my house, I need you to clap your hands through the house. Mm. That way I know you're not stealing from me if I'm not (laughs) around you.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good point. It changes the stigma, actually. Is that When I present as an addict now, clean and a business owner and whatever, and, you know, with my life together, I change the stigma of what people think addicts are. And I was explaining to someone the other day. I was like, you know, I still call myself an addict. Just like – Someone who went to war still considers himself a veteran Absolutely. for life. Someone who has cancer still considers themselves a cancer survivor. Right. They don't talk about being cured with cancer. They talk about remission.
1: And that's a great point. Like, you know, like you're an addiction survivor. But then it's like, you know, once you go from surviving your addiction. But I still have it. You know what I ex- mean? Right. I still have to live with it. Just like someone else lives with PTSD. And funny enough. I went to school and, I, you know, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but like after going to school, I just recently had to do 20 CEUs for my credential that I hold as a certified addiction professional, if you will. And part of the thing that, you know, when I was doing my CEUs, I was just thinking about the PTSD that we don't talk about. So like you're talking about veterans with PTSD and how they still carry that. And Addicts in recovery, a lot of times we think PTSD is just those who go to war mm-hmm. and see traumatic events firsthand, and then somehow we disassociate or minimize being in active addiction and the trauma we experience. Like, you know, yes, I grew up in Glen Burnie in the county, but then also when I would have to live with my father, it was in South Baltimore – So it wasn't unusual to see houses that were burnt out. It wasn't unusual to see people in the street fighting. It wasn't unusual to see people getting shot at. And then, you know, getting into, you know, my addiction, you know, when you're you're smoking crack in the projects, Mm -hmm. you're going to encounter many facets of life. So it wasn't uncommon to be held at gunpoint. And so then to get into recovery and having all these different traumatic events, sometimes we forget that we still have PTSD, Mm -hmm. but we minimize it because we think that PTSD is only associated with warlike events. And I think everyone kind of has PTSD
0: to some degree, and, and we minimize it because we don't think that because it was a hardcore type of thing. I know people that have had severe traumatic experiences. that don't even think that that's what shaped their personality or whatever. It was more of something like, you know, their goldfish dying or, or something small, but it happened to them at a certain time that impacted them worse than being held at gunpoint or something like that. Absolutely. And you have a clinical background, too. I forgot about this. Right.
1: So. Well, that's one of the, the interesting things about where I'm at in my life is that not only do I have a life experience of being an addict, being an addict in recovery and going to school forth to be a clinical counselor and then learning the theory behind why I did most of the stuff I do and then why I still do some of the stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. But it all goes back to the identification that I'm still an addict named John. Mm-hmm. I still have these tendencies that I live with that I have to remind myself when I do something that somebody might constitute as you know, wild or a mistake in life or a lapse of judgment. No, that's just me being human that I'm still human regardless. Like, people who go to church Mm -hmm. and practice a belief, like, I've seen church leaders have a lapse in judgment, and then they're disassociated from the entire church organization. And they throw away everything they've ever done prior to that. Exactly. And, you know, I went to seminary. So I've literally done a, you know, I remember this kid saying, like, you know, hey, how about you do a B90X? And I was like what's a B90X? And he's like, well, you've heard of P90X. I was like, yeah, I've actually done that two or three times, and it's probably <laughs> the best shape I've ever been in. And he was like, well, can you read the Bible in 90 days? And I was like, wow, oh, that sounds cool. like a lot. And so I did it. And so I have this general understanding of the whole book. And so sometimes it's difficult to go to places of that nature, because you know, once you've went to school for that or learned about it, and people start using it out of context to justify a position, and you know, mm-hmm. because you've went, you've had the training. Because one of the things that I found wildly interesting while in a Bible college is how many people had never read the Bible all the way through, mm-hmm. which I thought was wild. And so the same thing happens in recovery. Yeah, I, took a, I took a
0: history of the, a Bible study course in college, and it really changed my—because we read it yeah. from cover to cover and analyzed every single page. And then he went back to, like, the Hebrew meaning of stuff. And there was a lot of—like, I didn't know I was, you know, 20 when I was in college. I didn't know— That half of the Bible is the Hebrew Bible. I didn't know that. thousand percent. I I didn't know that the First Testament is the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And that people that are Jewish just believe in that first part.
1: They don't believe in the second part, but they're still reading the First Testament. And that's one of the fascinating things when you dive into religion is— just all the different perspectives and how people believe in those perspectives based on how history has traveled over the years it's just like recovery mm-hmm. like you have some people that will use different parts in whatever recovery literature they're reading at that time and use it to justify a position that that's not what the whole paragraph means mm-hmm. you're just taking a a sentence out of a whole paragraph to justify a point that has nothing to do with what the intentional meaning of that paragraph was supposed to be for mm-hmm. And so that's been one of the curious things along my, you know, entire journey is not only reading many books of spirituality, recovery, whatever the case is, but then also internalizing that and being open-minded to other people's perspectives and knowing that just because I might not believe doesn't give me the right to belittle your belief, Mm -hmm. which I think can Yeah, it's not a right or wrong, it's a path. It's just like ice cream. Yeah, like we could both like ice cream, but like, look, you might like cookies and cream. I love you know? cookies. I'm a mint guy. <laughs> right? Look, sometimes I want. Uh, what is it? Uh, is it pecan? Are you a butter pistachio? pecan? Okay. Butter pecan is like. I, like I had it. Really? When, I never thought I was a butter pecan guy until I was at the <laughs> all you can eat sushi yeah, spot, yeah. and they just happen to have the little ice creams off to the mm-hmm. side, and I was like, yeah, that's my flavor all the way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the how I got here, I guess, just the qualifies that uh. Look, I was just one of those kids who really didn't know where I fit in anywhere. You know, when you're living part time in the county and then spending the other half of the time in the city, there's this excitement. But it really it's fear. But I didn't know it was fear. Mm -hmm. And so there's this excitement about seeing people shooting at each other. There's this this rush when you're seeing people being let out into the streets that start fighting in front of you. But then you go back to the county and you're like, oh, this is weird. And then, you know, being raised by a single mom because, you know, my father, the first time I ever experienced powerlessness ever in my life was, and didn't even know that I was experiencing, is when I watched my father take my brother into the back room and he would beat him while we all listened. I will never forget having the family in the room, grandfather, uncle, the you know, everybody in the living room, and we're all listening to this. And I'm looking at them, they're looking at me, and I'm like, aren't you going to do something? And it's like, look, if you don't shut up, like, you're next. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I didn't know that that was that feeling of powerlessness. I just knew that I was out of control. Like, I couldn't control that. And I remember thinking to myself that I would never let anybody make me feel that way. And so even at an early age, I realized that fear and intimidation could get you what you wanted. Mm -hmm. That it could make people act and react in a certain way, regardless if you were going to or not. But if you projected with fear and intimidation... You can make people do and act however you wanted them to. So at a very early age, I'm already learning these behaviors on top of the fact that, like, you know, now I'm living with mom because, you know, they're not together anymore for obvious reasons. And next thing you know, like, you know, I'm learning these behaviors like, uh, you know, mom telling me, oh, well, just tell the truth. What happened? I'm like, nah. She's like, well, well, did you break that? No, I didn't break that. Mm -hmm. Are you sure? I swear I'm not going to beat you. Everything's good. And I'm like all right, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I might have like slipped and broke that. And then next thing you know, we would get the beaten. And so then at an early age, I'm learning, one, fear and intimidation gets you what you want. Two, that lying works, that don't tell the truth, because even when people say they're not going to do something, oh, you're all the way getting it. Mm -hmm. So don't trust authority figures, whether Mm -hmm. or not it's parental or, you know, in society. And then also when things would happen in the house, they stayed in the house. Like, oh, you're crying? I'll give you something to cry about. You know, before the addiction even took off, we're just talking about just behaviors that I'm learning. One, fear and intimidation is good. Don't ever be honest with authority figures. Mm -hmm. Three, um, don't ever share your emotions that, you know, you should repress them. So this goes back to like the PTSD and trauma, although it might not always be from a direct standpoint, but the indirect harm or trauma that you're experiencing based on these people who, they're your parents. Mm-hmm. Growing up, your parents are supposed to be the ones that are like who you want to be like. You know, I want to be know like Mike. everything. They're perfect, whatever, never wrong. You know, as a
0: kid, I wasn't thinking my parents didn't know what they were doing or, Absolutely. or whatever. They were just like supposed to be, you know, the end all be all of authority and keeping us safe or whatever. And I think that, you know, for me, once I had learned to suppress a feeling like you're talking about, I think that was my first time using Because I learned how to, like, have a feeling and shut it off. Right. That's, you know, borderline being a sociopath, you know.
1: Well, what's interesting about that is that, like, sometimes I will tell people that sometimes I feel like I'm borderline sociopath Mm -hmm. because of different life experiences. So I have that happen as a child. So then I go into my addiction where, you know, I started off being like the weekend warrior, uh, playing Hey Mister, stuff like that. And then went from like a weekend thing became a daily thing. And then I went from living to use to using to live. Mm -hmm. And like I didn't realize until early on in recovery that I had switched from happiness to numb. Like my happiness is when I was numb because there was always so much chaos and confusion going on around me in the house or the neighborhood, depending what neighborhood I was in, is that until I used, that's when I felt normal. Because then I didn't have to think. I didn't have to feel. I didn't have to – Deal with anything that was happening around me because I was just on my own island. What was growing up in Baltimore like? So growing up in Baltimore, you know, I would go to live. My father lived with my grandmother. And so we used to live off of a uh, and Jack, which is right outside the city. They consider it like South Baltimore you know, Jada Kiss, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big hip-hop guy, and I like to listen to – I don't know if this is a shameless plug or not for drink champs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things that I enjoy about that particular podcast is hearing different hip-hop artists' like life experience, and not just what you hear them rapping about, but actually life stories. And one of the episodes Jada Kiss talks about, if you've never lived on that side of the street, it's really hard for you to really understand what is happening in society. But if you ever have the gift – and, you know – it might not be a gift to some that are living there right now. But, like, look, I remember, you know, like I said, it wasn't unusual. You know, the Brooklyn homes were a block up. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't weird to see people out there selling drugs, using drugs, in the streets. You know, at grandma's house when you would go downstairs, you would hear the roaches clicking around. You would hit the lights. You would see them scattered. Like, that was not unnormal. And then, like, she would make it known, like, look, do not leave the yard. Don't go in the alleyway. Because bad things happen. And so like, look, it wasn't weird to come home one night because, you know, she was a a church going woman. You know, she was all about the three times a week. And, you know, sometimes she'd go twice on Sunday and we would come back one time and uh, there was a car literally that uh, was all shot up, glass broken out. And there's a cop car in front of the house at the house across the street. And it's a domestic violence piece that he's, you know, dealing with. And the car literally – this is like out of a movie. Like the car literally crashes into the cop car, door open, dude falls out, all shot up. She's mm. like, yeah, go in the house. And so, like I said, to see that and then go into, you know, back to my mom's house, which is, you know, out in Glen Burnie, which is nothing prestigious. It's like they call it Glen Dirty. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I guess you could say we were white trash. You know what I'm saying? But – uh, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, I was the reality of it. it. was like, you know, middle to low class, like neighborhood or whatever. But to see two wildly different sides of things, to have that perspective, for me, it shifted, you know, even in my adulthood. Like I see, like at one point, I used to sell uh, life, health, and annuities and disability benefits to city, state, and federal employees. And so sometimes I would be down in Baltimore City going into the schools and schools that you have to buzz into. That, you know, the stuff on the walls, you know, or, or on the windows, but then you would go into the classrooms and, like, you would be in the county selling this the same product, same benefits to another teacher out in the county somewhere, and then you would come to the city and you would walk into that school, and if you've seen the classrooms that these kids, li- that they're in, I'm talking about books that literally have duct tape on them, holding them together, and then you wonder why some kids have more of a, an advantage as others, but then also Like One of the things that um, I've also come to find out is that sometimes those of us don't come from economic backgrounds, uh, we learn how to be resourceful. So although it does seem like a disadvantage growing up, not Mm -hmm. having opportunity based on limited economics, one of the things that I did learn as a child was how to be resourceful Mm -hmm. so that when I got into my adulthood – I realized that what seemed like a challenge became an opportunity based on learning how to be so resourceful. And that's also one of the things that I struggled early on in my recovery was the love of the struggle. Mm -hmm. I used to love the struggle of having to find the ways and means to get more or with using or whatever the case is. The downside that is, is that when you're not using and you start to act like that, and then you start losing jobs, you start sabotaging relationships Because you're so used to the struggle that when you're not struggling, you feel as if everything is falling apart around you Mm -hmm. and don't know how to be okay not being in the struggle.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, a few years ago I went to therapy and um, my therapist was saying, he was asking me a lot about like my childhood and stuff. And he was saying that we recreate our childhood feelings as adults. So, you know, as a, as a kid, if you felt scared or vulnerable or whatever, you start to recreate what you did as a kid, you know? So if like you grew up in a house full of secrets as an adult, you start to create secrets right. because that's what you're used to. thousand percent. But at the same time, like sometimes people are like, uh, like a black neighborhood is so bad or whatever. I'm like, you know, it's not really skin color based. It's based on how desperate people are. Right. You know, if you take away their resources, people start stealing, you know? People do steal when they have, like, money in their pocket, but when you don't have money in your pocket, it becomes a lot more enticing to steal. Survival. So people are, like, surviving, and, yeah, it's a lack of resources idea as opposed to, like, you know, black or white type of thing, you know? And
1: this goes back to the whole hip-hop thing. Like, you know, Tupac was one of my greater influences because he just talked about everyday life and struggle And the whole thug-like movement, people usually associate that with violence and things like that, but that was not his goal. Like Mm -hmm. thug life was about people trying to get an opportunity and being denied to have an opportunity. And so he felt because of that that they had to kick in doors and create their own opportunities because they weren't giving an opportunity to prove That they could not only do Mm -hmm. what, you know, that job or fulfill that role or whatever, but they could do it at a level as everybody else. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes back to, again, like, you know, when you were talking about growing up in Baltimore, like, look, there's white projects, there's black projects, there's uh, Spanish projects. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, more times than not, yes, are there drugs there? Absolutely. But then there are other people that those weren't always the projects. Those are people who that was the most affordable housing that they could afford that were just regular neighborhoods. But then over a period of time, mm-hmm. based on the distance between, you know, economics, based on those who have, have not, however you want to call that, then you're forced into a situation where you can't leave mm-hmm. because the opportunity evaporates right in front of you. And now you're in a situation where you feel stuck. And anybody who feels through stuck. through generations. And then what happens is, is then prejudices, biases, all that stuff, it's all learned behavior. And then it's reinforced when you have experiences like, you know, when people talk about, oh, you know, I'm pulled over because of this color. Well, look, there were many days I was pulled over because when you're in that neighborhood, they automatically assume. Mm -hmm. Like I've been pulled over many a times in my childhood and adulthood Based on riding through neighborhoods where they didn't think I had any business being there, although the reality is, is that like growing up, you have friendships like for some of us, like because I didn't grow up in, you know, whatever neighborhood like there were neighborhoods that I would go to that weren't uncommon, you know, because those are my friends. I didn't care that you either had a, a chain on or you didn't have a chain on. Like, you know, some people had to Reebok pumps. I had to LA gear pumps and I'd be clowned on. it. You know, mm-hmm. and I'd be like, look, my pump, like your pump, you know. And it would just be this whole thing. And so, you know, just even that learned behavior that like, you know, some people will judge you based on what you wear. You're either a good or not good enough person based on just what you're wearing. Mm-hmm. Especially as a kid. You know, as a kid, you just can't win. You know, if you Mm -hmm. have, like, nice
0: shoes, you know, you got punked because you're like, oh, you're rich. You got nice shoes. If you got shitty shoes on, you got clowned on because you had, like, the fake Adidas or, you know, the wannabe Air Forces.
1: And I think one of the things that even in counseling when I was going to school during my time – One of the things that we had talked about is the influence of social media as it continues to grow and grow and how that's going to limit communication and why we'll have more behavioral issues as time goes on, more depression, PTSD, trauma, all that other stuff as it relates to social media. Because in the entire history of the world, we have never had access to so much information at the touch of our palm that we can Google whatever, we can YouTube, TikTok, you know, whatever the case is and find it right there. Like, back in the day, like, there was a newspaper, and you might catch the 8 o'clock or the 6 o'clock news, whatever it was. I didn't watch the news. So Mm -hmm. that's how you found out about information in your neighborhood. They weren't talking about other neighborhoods or other states or what was happening. Like, sure, if you had the USA Today or New York Times, yes, you might see some other stuff that was going on. But now, at the touch of a button, you're seeing stories from everywhere in the entire country, and it's always that fear You know, Mm -hmm. someone got shot, someone got killed. This is what's happening. And then what happens is is now we create the situation where we feel like it's happening all the time, all over the place. And the reality is it's happening here and there. But because it's all put into one place where we read it, it seems like it's happening everywhere all at the same time. Mm-hmm.
0: And Which is interesting because it's like, you know, people are like, you know, is there more police brutality now or is it just that we have more access to it? You know, but like at the same time, it's like imagine what would have happened 40, 50 years ago. There wasn't fucking a camera on every intersection. Right. Uh, think about all the incidents that go on today that we only know about it because they're wearing a body cam.
1: Absolutely. Funny that you bring that up because like, you know, we talk about like, you know. All these different movements that are happening right now. And for me, I'm like, this was happening. This has been happening for years. Mm -hmm. Like I remember Baltimore City at one point, like the schools were getting ready to lose funding because they weren't reporting how many guns kids were finding out front of the schools Mm. because they were afraid of the media surrounding that. Like, is it great that we're talking about this now? Yes. But unfortunately, is it too late? No, I mean, it's never too late. But, you know, what's the follow through with that? You know, like you said, like nowadays we have so much access to technology and information that it almost appears like it's happening more now than it ever has, Mm -hmm. but it's not.
0: And there's also things that have stopped happening. Like I was talking to someone the other day, like what happened to serial killers? Yeah. Like there was like 20 years where there was a new serial killer every month. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the school shootings are horrific and it seems like there's more and more school shootings, but there's also things that are, it seems like they're going away. Serial killers go away. Who knows?
1: You know, I don't know. Definitely not. You know, like, look, they exist. Sure. But I think as a whole, I think most people would say is that has it been limited. Sure. Because, again, technology. There's mm-hmm. cameras on every street corner. I remember when Baltimore City first put up the blue light cameras. Yeah. And then people knew if you've seen blue lights, do not go there yeah. for one or two reasons. One, because the camera is shooting and watching. But two, that's probably a high traffic area. Yeah. So it provides awareness, but also... It provides us a realistic view of what's happening in real time. Mm -hmm. Do bad things happen in bad places? Absolutely. And is anybody else going to go in there to do the job? Probably not. We all rather sit in, you know, uh, what they call it, the armchair quarterback. Mm -hmm. It's always easy to contradict or, you know, rebel against whatever system or the way things are being done when you're not the one out there doing it. Yeah, criticizing it. Yeah. Correct. And look, are there bad police? Absolutely. Are there people out there doing their job? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's just unfortunate that the way the media presents it, it's all in one place. Mm -hmm. You don't have to search to find stuff anymore. You know, every time, like if I went on Yahoo or Facebook or whatever, I'm sure I'll find many posts about what things are happening right now. Like especially around elections time when everything was getting crazy, people were wiling out. And I was like, look, you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. And so like when everybody else started posting all their their fanatical beliefs or anything like that, I started posting something and and I haven't stopped. I've been Mm -hmm. doing it since the beginning of the year, since the election started, that I post some kind of saying every day, whether or not it's spiritual or it's about business stuff or, you know, just whatever, some kind of saying like you were born an original, don't die a copy, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. Like, just to remind people or just to put that energy out there. Something positive. thousand percent. And mm-hmm. what I found interesting is I seen either people were watching it, and then sometimes they were reposting the stuff that I was putting out there. Mm-hmm. But then that's that ripple effect. Like, we can talk about the problem all day long, but what are you doing to push the movement? What are the positive changes that you're doing in your area to support your local you know, whoever's out there that's trying to push this thing and make it happen because it's not enough to talk to another individual. But what is the energy or positivity or action that you're taking to make these things happen? Because it's not enough to just sit around like it goes back to addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, like, look, once I survive, now will I thrive? You know, you got to grow up if you want to glow up. You know, it's not enough to just say, well, I just stopped using drugs and now everything is supposed to go my way. You know, to have a belief system and a God, whatever that looks like, just because you believe, that doesn't mean that, like, someone's going to come to the Mm -hmm. door and knock on the door with a big check in their hand and say, hey, congratulations. You threw that prayer up the other night. Ta-da. Now here, all your problems are solved. Mm -hmm. The belief system is just have something to fall back on to help you get through your times. Because what I realize is that, you know, some people talk about fear and faith can't live in the same house. And for me, if it wasn't for fear, I wouldn't need faith. But what happens is, is that when I practice faith while walking through fear, because that's what it's for, when I feel like I can't overcome this challenge, or if I feel like there's an opportunity that I've missed out on in the past, it's having enough faith, courage that, you know, and the God that I believe, serve, higher power, whatever you want to call that, is going to give me what it is, one that I can handle, because like, look, just because you want it doesn't mean you can handle it. Mm-hmm. I've met many a men and women who want to be business owners, and then they're put in a position of leadership and then realize that they're not meant for it. Like you have leaders, you have managers, you have supervisors, you have people that are good just being like role players. Mm -hmm. Like we all have our position to play in this life. And so like what I've learned when I'm practicing faith while walking through fear, I gain perseverance. And the perseverance is the win or the result that I get to take with me, that life experience that tells me that- Uh, Before getting into recovery or before having this belief or before practicing this kind of faith, walking through fear that these things don't happen for people like you, Mm -hmm. that you're being punished based on a lifestyle that you live before, you know, getting clean. And then when I get that perseverance, I start to realize, well, if I can do that, what else can I do? Yeah. But sometimes you have to be shown that. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know that you could like own Mercedes Benzes and stuff Mm -hmm. like that until like, you know, I remember coming to South Florida to visit. And seeing the stuff in real life. Yeah. Like, this was stuff that i seen in music videos. You didn't just see people pulling up in them back in the day. Yeah. You know, where, I mean, nowadays, I feel like there's just more access because they're just such a catalog now that didn't exist back in the day. Mm-hmm. The Honda Accords back in the day were, like, as simple as simple could get.
0: I had another guest on the show and he was talking about like back in the day, if you wanted to be successful, it was like rap music or like you have to get lucky or rich parents or whatever. But now there's like this entrepreneurship like wave where it's like, it's cool to start a business and people are seeing that there are other ways to accomplish your dreams that regular everyday people are doing, you know, which is my point of the podcast is to, you know, people always ask me like, how come you don't have like a celebrity on here? And it's like, celebrities that are in recovery already tell their story all over the place. Right. Like, to me, when I got clean, I didn't want to hear that Lindsay Lohan had two months clean. That's Lindsay Lohan, bro. <laughs> right. She has all the resources right. in the world. You know, when I started to see regular day people, and like, you didn't need a Benz to impress me. Yeah. If you had like a job for a year right, and like got your teeth fixed yeah. and you like smoked crack for 10 years, that was enough for me. I was impressed.
1: Oh, you've been in a relationship for a year? Yeah. Hold on. How does that happen? hmm You know, and and you didn't destroy, you don't beat her when you get home or, you don't emotionally sabotage the relationship. How do you do that?
0: Yeah, I was telling someone the other day, like, when I had a year clean, I was at a job, I was picking up my check and my old check was still in my wallet. When I got my second check, when I went to go put it in there, I had the old (laughs) one still in there and I started crying. Yeah. And it was like, I had never in my life had two checks at the same time. Because my whole life, if I ever got a check from, like, some shitty job I had, yeah. instantly would go to the check cashing store, Publix. I'd be calling places to cash it. Right. I'd be begging my employer for the check early, yeah. you know. And they'd be like, bro, we cut checks on Friday. I'm like, I know they get, they get I know they get printed Thursday <laughs> right. night, bro. I know you got the money already. Yeah, right. come on, you know. So it's like, uh, for me, there was a lot of simple everyday things that were miracles to me that I started to see. That seemed more attainable than the far-fetched belief that some celebrity or multimillionaire or, or whatever person could get clean. And it started with, like, hey, maybe I could get my license back. Hey, right. maybe I could, like, not
1: do drugs and be fucking strung out, you know? Well, you know, and that's so interesting. Like, you know, I was just, we were just talking about this, me and somebody else recently, about, like, when I first got clean, like, I didn't have my license I didn't have a bank account. Bank account when you you know when you're smoking a crack in the projects. I kept my like, money in my sock. Right, like <laughs> there is no like savings account. You know, like you know the car that I had, like you know I was using to the point where you know I was just sharing an a step the other night and I was talking about like my grandmother who co-signed on this car who had no business co-signing on this car, but I begged her and she looked out and. Because I didn't know how to accept personal responsibility at that time in my life. I didn't pay bills. So I let the insurance lap. I'm smoking crack in the project. Mm-hmm. I cop, and the car runs out of gas in the middle of the projects. And so dude is trying to buy my Griffies off of me, and I'm like, no. And so I leave the car, gas can in hand, where I might have bought the gas can when I got to the gas station. But anyways, walk there, walk, back. it's just like 3 in the morning, in the middle of the projects. Mm-hmm. And they torched the car. They lit it on fire? They lit it on fire. And so there's fire ambulances and, and, you know, the whole deal. And they're looking at me. I'm looking at them. I'm looking, you know, like 3 o'clock in the morning. Dude walking through, you know. Why dude walking through the project? 1,000%. Only star in the sky. And so they're like, sir, uh, is that your car? I said, of course not. They said, "Uh, well, what are you doing? And I was like, well, you know, this gas – I had a friend who ran out of gas and, (laughs) you know, and obviously knew that I was lying. Mm -hmm. And when he put his his hand to my heart and he felt it pounding through my chest, he knew what time it was. Uh, But long story short, because the car wasn't paid off and couldn't pay it off, the car sat in my parents' yard for a number of years until I could get it paid off or it got paid off, you know, before uh, we could get rid of it. And just, you know, you would think that you would have a lesson learned in that moment, but instead – just went and self-medicated afterwards. Poor me. Mm-hmm. Another situation that what if if only and the reality is you can't play the victim when you've been the volunteer your whole life. You know, but like once you own that that you've been a volunteer, then change is possible. So, let's go back to your story. So,
0: when do you start using and when do you cross the line with using? Sure.
1: Like it goes back to like, you know, when you're a weekend warrior. And, you know, you're you're just what you think is having a good time. But then you start to, like, realize that you— How old were you when you were just, like, what, drinking and smoking weed? Maybe 13, 15, something like that. And then 16, it really started to take off where, you know, I went from being a weekend warrior to now I'm stashing 22s underneath the bed.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: when I come home from middle school and high school, I'm pouring a glass of beer with dinner. I'm an adult. Mm -hmm. You're not telling me nothing. I don't know that my parents, um, were they concerned? Maybe. But I don't know that it was enough of a concern for them to not allow it to go on because then it became normal. And Mm -hmm. then once it became normal, then it became an everyday thing because then, like I said, like numb had become my happiness. And then next thing you know, when you feel like you don't fit in because you spend some time in the city, you spend some time in the county. And then next thing you know, you're like, well, I don't know that I really fit in both because I don't spend enough time in both. Then you just go into this whole thing where you start hanging out with other people that fit that mold, where they don't know where they belong either. But we know the that misfits. When we, when we start to use together, we have that one thing in common that mm-hmm. we all like to have a good time. But then we don't want the good time to end.
0: And I think that's what first attracted me to like using because it was like when you would go to a party as a kid, there'd be like 80% of the party drinking and smoking weed and doing yeah. keg stands or whatever. And they were having a good time. But then upstairs – There was like people doing coke, people doing drug deals. (laughs) It was like a whole, it was like this, you know, you weren't allowed upstairs unless you like knew the owner of the house and like you were really plugged in with the people. And I remember wanting to be part of that in crowd and it would be like a dorky kid who had money, who had coke. It would be like some kid from like a more poor neighborhood that like sold it. And then, you know, it was just like this whole mixture of people. And then when you keep using, you keep using like, the stereotypes and the stigmas all kind of fade away, right. and it's more of like, bro, if you got 20 bucks, I got a
1: car. A thousand percent. And that's it. You yeah. Know? I didn't get my license until I was 18 <laughs> because I didn't need a license when you're getting high. Like, you tell somebody to come pick you up, and you'll, you know, get them on. Yeah. Look, I'm on my way.
0: That's how I learned manipulation and power yeah. because, like— When I was a kid, I realized that if I asked someone to come pick me up, they'd laugh at me. But as soon as I was like, I'll smoke you out, they're like, I'm on the way. And that's when I learned how fake people were. And I was like, oh, this kid wants to be my friend, but he's not really my friend because he just wants me for this. And then I was like, well, if people are going to play that game with me, I'm going to play that game with them. And I learned that as long as I had drugs or money or a connect, I can really get people to do whatever I wanted them to do. You're know, you talking about being in seventh grade,
1: kind of learning that. Conditional relationships. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're talking about like the curiosity. And then I wonder why i have issues in relationships right. when I get clean. Right. You know? And the curiosity factor goes back to like, you know, most of my excitement is rooted in fear or curiosity. Like I wonder, well, why are they upstairs? Mm-hmm. Well, how come they don't want to let me sniff this white powder that they're sniffing? But then after, you know, you, you press a few times and then you do. And then you realize that, oh, wow, that's why. Mm-hmm. And then, like, for those of us who do have addiction, it's not enough to just, you know, have a good time. Like, we want to have a good time all the time. Like, my mother used to call me Good Time Johnny. <laughs> you know, I was the kid who had a cooler and a beer tap in my car at all times with the beer bong. Wow. So there wasn't a time that we might go out, that we could go in the trunk, and I would have either stuff in the cooler or we'd be at some like keg or, or someone stole a keg and he'd be like, But I don't have a tap, what do I do? And I'm like, Well, funny enough, let me go back to the car. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I was like the Batman. I had a different accessories in the back of the trunk for any given situation. Mm-hmm. It's just Yeah that. I could make a bong out of anything, <laughs> right, you know?
0: Right. And I think that uh, you know, as a kid, it's like um if I had something you needed, I felt needed. Absolutely. And where somebody would feel okay not having it, right? I needed to have it at all times. Yeah. because I felt like you wouldn't want me around unless I had something on me. For some people, not having weed on them was like, well, I'll get some later. Right. I had such low self-esteem that I needed to have it with me 24-7. I couldn't go without it. And I'm not even talking about being high. I'm talking about the drug in my pocket made me feel okay knowing that it was there because I had some type of tool to maneuver through the social status of trying to be cool.
1: And what's even more interesting about that is like, you know, with the education I have is realizing my role in the house, how that played out into my role when I was out in neighborhoods. Like in the house, I could play the role of the superhero. Like you have those who are the black sheep, uh, you have those who want to play the rescuer, you know what I'm saying, like the superhero, like, oh, my God, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And then you start doing that out in society in other relationships where you want to be the guy. When you come to the party, you can't just show up and have a good time. You feel like you need to be the guy that walks in with a case. Mm-hmm. Or if you know someone's bringing a case, you're bringing bottles. Yeah. Or if someone's you know, doing this, it's like almost like you want to be like the guy when you walk in. Mm-hmm. And learning how to try to turn that off where it's okay to just be okay. Like the true value is in just you showing up, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's the value. It's not the value of what you bring, because if your value is in what you bring when it's gone, then you have no value.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And then had to relearn that, that I didn't always have to bring something besides myself. I didn't realize the value that I possessed just from a personal standpoint, like values, education or knowledge or whatever the case is. Like there's some people that I'd love to hang out just because they're so funny. Mm -hmm. There's other people that I enjoy hanging out because they're just super in-depth, spiritual, whatever. Like, everybody has their position to play. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's enough. Like, I don't always need somebody to have something for me to want to conversate with them. That's been one of the gifts is just learning the value of other people when you come out of such a conditional-based relationship that you're just recycling based on Back to the harm cycle. Mm -hmm. When you're living in that harm cycle of fixed managed control, uh, manipulation, fear and intimidation, just living in that and then having to shed those outdated survival skills because now you're doing more living than surviving, that you have to learn how to live without them. But that doesn't mean that you don't have those tools available to be aware Mm -hmm. so that if you find yourself in a situation, at least you know who everybody is in the room because even still to this day, Uh, When I go out, I will scan a room and and determine, you know, who I can conversate with, how much information to share with this person. But then I also have to watch because growing up in those neighborhoods and learning that conditioned lifestyle and living a private life, if you will – That even in my neighborhoods, I would travel to different neighborhoods and hang out so that not one person would know everything about me. Mm -hmm. You would only know pieces of my story based on the neighborhood you were in. And even early in recovery, I would do the same thing. Like I got clean um, in what they would consider the west side when it comes to recovery. But it was right off of like uh, Route 40 and Edmonton Avenue is where I got clean towards Baltimore. And I would travel out to different meetings in different areas And was doing the same thing. I was creating groups of friends in different areas Mm -hmm. and then couldn't figure out why I kept finding myself in this position of loneliness. Yeah. Never having like true meaningful relationships. And then what would happen is, is that if something happened in that relationship, then it would affirm the belief I had that people are going to let you down. That people don't know how to maintain relationships Mm -hmm. or, you know, don't trust anybody or whatever the case is. And then it just reinforces that loneliness Where then, you know, I can say that I live a private lifestyle, and sure, to some degree that's true, but what happens is I've created this wall of loneliness and isolation for fear that, you know, if I tell you and show you who I am, that you might try to take advantage of what I have, or it becomes another conditional relationship where you only want based on what it is that I have Mm -hmm. to offer.
0: And I've talked about the show before is the difference between building walls and setting boundaries, where there's a healthy way to set a boundary, because not everything's for everybody at the same time. But I need to be open and honest 100% with my close friends. My close friends have become family. Right. So I have like five close friends and then I have my close family and they know everything about me. Yeah. And then I have people that are acquaintances. There are some people that it wouldn't be appropriate to tell right. them about my love life and my personal and right. my professional life. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's just not, you right. shouldn't do that. Yeah. I had a lot of contradictory beliefs Yeah, where I felt like, you know, I couldn't manage All the lies or what I told one person in my active addiction. And then when I get clean, I also don't know how to manage the truth and what's too much of the truth. And I didn't know how to have real intimacy or real connections, probably up until I had like a year or two clean. And then I start getting resentful towards people because, you know, or I want to have so much distance that if I needed to cut it off, I could cut it off. But um, let's talk about, like, you know, when you cross that line. So you're drinking and smoking and doing, like, the kid stuff. When do you dive into, like, hardcore use and what was that?
1: So then as progression went on, then I got introduced to the club. And I love music. And (laughs) so, like, music and drugs kind of go hand in hand. So next thing you know, I'm in Baltimore clubbing. And then I meet some people and they start taking me to D.C. raves. Now we're raving out in D.C. And Nations is, like, a huge club. I don't even know if it's still there. But back in the day... ecstasy, it was three, four floors and two sides to this building that was just insane. A lot of electronic dance music. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I was still in high school. So I would go into class. I would go a half a day, go to the counselor's office, tell them that I needed a a pass for class or whatever for being in the counselors. And then I would leave and then I would go meet up with people. And then we would do whatever we do until we went to the club that night. And then I would leave straight from the club and come back to school. It wasn't weird for me to be in school just hammered. Mm -hmm. Like I would be picking people up and we would go get uh, some Parrot Bay, pour it and go to McDonald's, tell them Mm -hmm. to give us the super-sized cup of ice. And then we would mix it with the pineapple juice and we'd be in first period just getting lit, meeting back at lunch, filling it back up. Like I said, it just became this way of life, if you will. Mm -hmm. Where, like, I wasn't using to have a good time. I was using just to live. I was using just to be normal, just to function in everyday life. Like, I didn't know how to be personable. I didn't know how to tell a joke. I didn't know how to dance because it masked all the insecurities so that I didn't have to feel any of that. You know, as the club drugs went on, then somebody was like, hey, when people talk about smoking crack, they're like, you know, that's dirty. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be a crackhead. But then somebody one night was like, you know, because after, you know, blowing lines for a few days, you just can't sniff anymore. And so they were like, well, look, we buy this uh, crack that, uh, you know, you smoke it. And I said, oh, word. And they're like, yeah, you, don't, you know, there's no drip. There's no, I was like, oh, word. Mm-hmm. And so I will never forget the first time. Well, actually, the first time I ever did that was, uh, you know, smoking it in a, you know, in a blunt or whatever, or L, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. And all the way gassed. All the way. Didn't even know what was happening with my life. <laughs> you know, dude crushed a whole thing in there. And, I mean, I was like, you know, having the – um, Like the dry, numb mouth. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Where you can't and breathe. It was a whole thing. Yeah. And then once I got that rush, that I was off to the races. Mm-hmm. You know, just the speed forward uh, through high school. You know, once I graduated, I was like, oh, it's the greatest day ever. I can use without having to worry about school or whatever. When's the first time you smoked crack? Ooh, that's a great question. Somewhere between 16 and 18. Like, yeah. I was still really young yeah. the first time I smoked. Because it was in, you know, mixed with weed, it didn't seem like a big deal. Yeah. But then once I graduated to smoking it out of, <laughs> out of a can, yeah. you know, we're classy. You know, just getting a Coke can, you mm-hmm. know, and just, you know, putting the holes in it and whatever. But, yeah, I will never forget getting to a place where I remember in recovery telling people I was homeless, And it wasn't that I was homeless. Like, I was working at a pizza shop with a dude who showed me where to go in the projects. And he would take me there. And I'd be shook. But I was more shook of not getting it than going. Mm -hmm. And he would—his name was Tick, funny enough. Him and this girl, Booty, that I used to run with in the projects. Like, sometimes I feel like you just can't make this stuff up. Mm -hmm. But uh, we used to work in a pizza shop together. And he would take me out there. He was like, yo, don't ever come here by yourself. But long story short, the night he went there, I went by myself. And then it was really over And long story short, behind the pizza shop, there weren't houses at the time. There was like uh, trees and whatever. And I would park my car back there after smoking crack all night, and I would sleep in my car. Mm -hmm. And I would have all my clothes in the trunk. So I was literally living out of my car, literally. So the cooler and all that stuff was replaced. It was all clothes. It was all my stuff. And then whatever I didn't have on me was in my mother's uh, house at the time. And, you know, I would tell people I was homeless and it wasn't that I was homeless. It was that my mother didn't want me smoking crack in her house. You know what I mean, it was frowned upon to have a few people in there smoking crack in the living room or the basement. And so here I am, you know, I don't know, 18, 19, sleeping behind this pizza shop, smoking crack. Turn the heat up as high as I could get it in the car and crack in the windows because I was like, yo, I don't want to die from asphyxiation of having the heat <laughs> on. But like, you know, I'm not going to worry about blowing my heart out from smoking coke for five days straight. You know what I'm saying? Just the insanity of that alone. Like, oh, let me worry about the asphyxiation, but not the, you know, the fact that I'm sitting here smoke Anyway, you know, that kept happening until uh, I thought that if I moved somewhere differently. So I moved to Columbia, Maryland which is like prestigious, like there's no buses that run in Columbia because they don't want people from the city coming to Columbia, stuff like that. You know, was renting out a room from somebody. And uh, long story short, you know, after the car got blown up and the whole thing, I lost my license, got a DUI and still didn't think I had a problem. And, you know, one night, look, when the disease came calling at like 2 in the morning, I woke up, Army commanded across the floor, stole the roommate's keys and was gone. For eight hours.
0: So like what people don't understand is what you said is like when the disease calls, there were so many times where I wanted to stay clean, like so bad. I was not used. There's times where I've thrown away paraphernalia. Knew it was wrong. Knew it was wrong. Didn't want to do this. Like, cause when you're doing like borderline social, uh, normal drugs like Coke or just drinking or whatever, (laughs) you can kind of lie to yourself that it's not really a big deal. Everyone does it. But let me tell you something, when you're buying crack pipes Mm. in the hood and the fucking clerk is like, bro, how old? The flowers, the flowers yeah, and the stem. Yeah, when you're buying the flower and the stem and the chore boy at the gas <laughs> station. Bro, I've had a clerk look at me and be like, bro, how old are you? Right. And I used to be like, like, what the fuck, bro? Sell me this just crack pipe. Just hand, just hand over. over the crack pipe, yeah, yeah. bro. And he looked at me and he was like, you got ID? And I remember thinking like, bro, this motherfucker's serious. And I did. I, had, right. I used to have 18 or older IDs to buy cigarettes yeah. and shit. And I showed him my ID. I remember he looked at it and he looked at me and he probably could tell that it was fake and he just sold it to me. But I remember like that feeling of like, I know this is wrong. I thought that I could handle it and I obviously can't. I made a terrible mistake trying this drug because you gotta be pretty arrogant to try crack and yeah, yeah. not think that it's gonna ruin your life. Thousand percent. And that's where the disease starts is the rules don't apply to me. Right. I was getting a whole bunch of speeding tickets and my sponsor was like, What? I was like, yeah, you know, I got like, you know, 17 tickets. He's like, how many? I was like, I got like 17. He's like, what? Only, only 17. I was like, got 17 tickets. And he's like, 17 tickets, Brian? Right. And I was like, well, you know, I had all these excuses. And he was like, bro, that's how using starts. Yeah. I was like, what do you, like, how does speeding and tickets have to do anything with using? Right. And he was like, because that mentality is the rules don't apply to you. Yeah. And um, I had to take a look at it, you know.
1: Yeah, the consequences fade away when you're so caught up in that disease of "What if I don't get it? If only I get caught." Mm-hmm. You know what? I have to because I don't know that I can stand being inside this skin with these thoughts. I can't survive if this I don't. feeling. Thousand percent.
0: When you were saying like the disease calls. I know what you're talking about for people that are listening is that there are times where I wanted to stay clean so bad I was not going to use. I was going to change my life. I didn't want to smoke crack anymore. I knew it was fucking me up. Yeah. And I would go to sleep, zero desire to use, and around 1 in the morning, Mm. I would get this feeling, and I'd wake up in a sheer panic. Yeah. And I couldn't even tell you what happened in the next hour. But I was army crawling across the room, swiping the keys, taking the debit card, and I was buying crack. And I didn't – there wasn't a, well, you shouldn't do this. That has all skipped. thousand percent. And it hijacks your ability to think. And science has proved this. Yeah. That addicts lose function of their frontal lobe. Yeah. So when people say, oh, why don't you stop? You don't understand that using hardcore drugs manipulates your brain chemistry. 1,000% that once you get addicted to a drug, you no longer have the frontal lobe acting like a normal person that it is based on straight impulse and you are no longer in control. And I say that to say that even the worst crackhead can get clean. Right. So I don't say that to say that if you're on drugs, you you ain't never going to get clean. But I want people to know that it is going to take beyond willpower. Right. That it's going to take a true act of a miracle. 1,000%. A ton of effort because back in the day, I used to think that willpower was enough. Right.
1: Well, one of the scientific things is, you know, if you're listening and you're just not familiar with, you know, addiction or chemical dependency or whatnot, I would challenge you to even Google euphoric uh, recall. Uh, Euphoric recall is a real thing. People think, you know, when people are asked, like, why do you keep doing this? And they say they don't know. Well, it's true. It's because they don't know because it's a chemistry thing. It's like most of us don't realize we only operate 10% in conscience at any given time of the day. Like I might be consciously aware that I'm in this room, but subconsciously I'm thinking, am I thirsty? Do I need something when I leave? Do I have laundry that I need to take? Is there, do I need to clean the bathroom when I get home? Do I want to watch the UFC fight tonight? <laughs> like subconsciously all this is going on, but we only operate 10% in our conscious at any given time. So if you have a euphoric recall, That happens, that creates this thing inside your body chemically that tells you you have to go now. Consciously, you're not going to sit there and have this big debate with self, especially when this is a lifestyle that you've been living. Hence why, you know, when you get into recovery and they talk about surrender to win and that there's two surrenders, like surrendering to the fact that, like, yes, when I use, it gets wild. But then the other surrender is what you were talking about is the surrendering to the new way of life, the lifestyle. Because I can only get past old behaviors once I start practicing new behaviors. And I learn a new set of survival skills. So when the euphoric recalls, that's why when people uh, ask to do a 90 and 90, the 90 and 90 is not something because they're trying to fix, manage, and control your life. It's because more times than not, it takes 90 days to develop a habit. Although mm-hmm. science has proved that it takes less than that now. But it takes 90 days to develop a habit. And the reason for that is, is so that when you're doing a 90 and 90, And then you're in that habit of going to meetings regularly. Yeah. So for people that
0: don't know, this is 90 meetings, 90 12-step meetings in 90 days. Right. You go to a meeting every
1: single day for 90 days. And it's not three meetings in a day. (laughs) And you can do like 30. It's like a true every day until you do 90 in a row. And the reason for that is that when you do have that euphoric recall and you want to use, your first thought isn't going to go to the crack house. Your first thought is, I need to go to a meeting.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's the simple idea that you put the hurricane shutters before the hurricane.
1: <laughs> That's it, bro. Like I've been t-
0: right. people like you know. I have learned to prepare for the storm before right. the storm comes because yeah. what I would do is willpower, willpower, not going to use, not going to use. Then I feel like using. I don't know what the fuck to do. Right. And now the storm is here and right. I'm thinking like, where are the fucking shutters? Well, you know, I need to fucking put them up now. And then it's fucking 60 yeah. miles per hour gust storm and like yeah. there's lightning and now I don't want to do it. So a lot of times in recovery even though I'm doing good, doesn't mean that I'm not preparing for when I'm not. And sometimes, you know, like the literature talks about the good times can be a trap. thousand percent. Most addicts use when the coast is clear. Yeah. Most addicts will use when the job's going good, when the girlfriend's happy with you. As soon as my parents say, I'm proud of you, my disease was like, ain't nobody looking now. It goes back to love of the
1: struggle. Mm -hmm. Like the struggle was my first love because I lived in such a struggle all the time. So then you get to a place where like you're okay. Mm
2: -hmm. And that's
1: like, all right, well, what do I do now? Like now that I'm okay, what do I do with this being okay? Now Mm -hmm. let me create a situation because I'm so used to chaos and confusion that like I remember early on my recovery, the only time I felt at peace is if I was in a high traffic area. Or if I was a place where there was a lot of people around or stuff was going on or whatever the case is, I felt more comfortable in chaos and confusion. Like early on, I couldn't meditate. That's how I meditated. I would go to coffee shops that were in the city or in high uh, foot traffic areas because I didn't know how to be at peace by myself as much as I knew how to be at peace amidst the storm. But over a period of time, like I remember learning how to come home and for one minute, I wouldn't turn on the radio. I wouldn't turn on the TV. I would just be silent in the house for one minute Mm -hmm. and then five minutes. And then can I wash the dishes and do the dishes or something around the house for 15, 20 minutes without anything – like learning how to be okay in the silence.
0: And I I try to teach that to anyone who's trying to get clean because you can read all the books and all this stuff, but if you don't learn to be quiet for one minute – you're never going to install that pause button. Absolutely. So what meditation does, is it installs that pause that I never had as a kid. Yeah. When I was a kid, my dad bought me a go-kart and he said, go slow. And I just floored <laughs> it and hit a mailbox. Right. Like as a kid, I never had that go slow mentality. Right. Everything I did was all the way... And now you mix drugs into that, and that gas pedal is stuck all the way down. 1000%. So when you go to a 12 step meeting, it starts with a prayer and yeah. it ends with a prayer. Absolutely. And it's less about prayer and religion and more about that pause. I think I had like two years clean before right. I started to see the benefit. Yeah. Of being able to slow my breathing down because you know science has proven that breathing controls your yeah. thoughts. The way you breathe is the temperature of your your thoughts are coming in. Absolutely, I could tell by someone's by their body language if they're ready to make a good decision or not. You Absolutely, know, you can tell if someone's feet are planted, you know, if they're tapping or whatever how right. anxious they are, as opposed to someone who has a slower heart rate and is really thinking about the consequences. And as addicts. We know the consequences, but they're not enough to stop us.
1: And one of the other things, I I was just talking to somebody, too, about my counseling career. One of the, I guess, benefits of what helped me in my counseling career was that my younger brother had clinical bipolar disorder. So I lived with it every day. Like, we could be laughing and joking, and next thing you know, he's chasing me through the house with a knife. Wow. That wouldn't be uncommon. It wouldn't and be uncommon. No one knew this was bipolar. <laughs> right, right. At the time, they were like, "There's, there's no just diagnosis. something wrong." Yeah. Right, you know, He's um, crazy. Thousand percent ADD. You know, that's before I think it went to ADHD. And so, like, you know, he was just a wild dude. Older, younger than you? Uh, younger, three years. And so, growing up with that, seeing how somebody could be so happy, joyous, and free in the moment, and then swing and be so destructive. But then, as soon as the destructive mode was done, they'd be sobbing, crying because they didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, like with using. Like you don't want to use. You're like, I remember I'd be on my way to cop and didn't want to go cop, and Mm -hmm. I'd be in tears because I didn't. I knew I was ruining my life. I knew I was destroying relationships. I knew. Nobody who's an addict is thinking like, yo, I just want to destroy. I would just want to burn it to the ground. (laughs) You know, this is what I was meant to do with my life is to be an all star drug addict who just destroys everything in my life but it's that something inside of us, like I said, the chemical imbalance that we create that makes us feel, nobody's ever died from a feeling, Mm -hmm. first off, but we feel as if we're going to die if we don't have this. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's why, so when you think about the concept of like addicts helping other addicts, Mm. is because we have a level of empathy that other people can never get to. So when I see someone using really bad, the family is normally like, Oh, he doesn't give a fuck about anybody. He's never going to get clean. He just doesn't care. He wants to use. And you might talk to the addict and he will say, I want to use. and I don't give a fuck about anybody and leave me the fuck alone. And I'm going to destroy my life. And you can say, you have kids, you got a family and they know all this. And they'll look you dead in your eyes and say, I don't give a fuck at all. And as an addict, I know that's a lie Yeah, because I've said the same thing. And I look people dead in the eye and said, I don't give a fuck. And deep down inside... I was crying for help. Struggle. At my worst. The struggle. My worst point in life where I didn't give a fuck. Right. I gave a fuck deep down in there. thousand percent. I wanted help. I loved my family. I didn't want to use. Yeah. I felt like a prisoner. Yeah. So when I see someone using hardcore, I don't see a disgusting, nasty, bad person. I see a prisoner. Right. And for me, I'm trying to tap into that prisoner right. and talk to the prisoner and not deal with the guard. Yeah. When you get clean, you put the guard in the cell. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? When you get clean, you learn, that's what we say arrested, right. you yeah. know? And you know, something you said. So like, as an addict, the fun loving child that was charismatic, that was lost is now in a cell. And the warden, the guard is the disease. Right. And when I get clean, and I learn to separate those two, I learned that Brian doesn't want to use. Yeah. My disease wants me to use. Thousand percent. The first step separates those two things. So I now have a decision and now I can take a look and say, look, I'm not going to listen to the
1: disease today. Because when you're using it something tells you to go get drugs, you think it's you. Absolutely. And one of the things that like you were back to what you were talking about, like when the person's telling you that, like, yo, I just want to use, get out of my face, da da. And it's not so much that they don't care. What they care about is if they were to tell you. That they were struggling like how would i deal with all the feelings and emotion it would be such a shock to the body that's why most people who have trauma also have disassociative properties because the body becomes so overwhelmed with the emotion because of whatever experiences that they don't know what to do with them so the person who's talking about like oh i don't care i want to use till the wheels fall off no they care it's just they care so much that they're afraid that if they stop using What are they going to do when they have to think about all the stuff they've done and the feelings Mm -hmm. of the guilt, shame, embarrassment, missed opportunity? How do I deal with what I feel is a tidal wave crashing down on me and don't feel as if I know how to swim and don't have floaties to survive this? What do I do then?
0: So I would always think like when I got to that point of total despair and sitting in Mm. a room where the police is like, I can't believe you're doing this. And my family is like, I can't believe this happened. And I'm sitting there like, neither can I, you know, like, like, I don't even have a good enough excuse anymore, because I ran out of excuses. And they don't even make sense at this point anymore. I've had all the chances in the world. If I did tell you I had a problem what could you do? Right. What the fuck could you do about it? Because I tried to stop a million times before I sat in this yeah. chair and that was five years ago. So when I realized I couldn't stop, I just went with it and was like, fuck it. Right. I have tried to stop and I can't. So I'm just going to own it and become like this drug addict. And at the end of the day, like death doesn't scare us when I'm using, I want to die. Right. So when my dad would look me in the eyes and say, you're going to die deep down, I would think. That's the point.
1: Like if if someone said, like, yo, you look like you know, you want to die, I am death. mm -hmm. I'm walking death. Mm -hmm. What's even crazier about that statement about someone saying that, for me, one of the biggest challenges I've had in recovery is how do I supplement the risk-taking behavior because of the way that I grew up and the experience that I've had, that sometimes I don't know how to supplement the risk-taking behavior. Because there is no bigger rush than being on the edge of death. Mm -hmm. And so there are times in my recovery where I either have to hike cliffs to where if you make a wrong step, like there is no reset button. You know, sometimes I want to drive cars or four wheelers or something like that in a way that is probably not healthy to some or roller coasters. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes I have to go to theme parks and stuff because I need to supplement that risk taking behavior Mm -hmm. Because for me, based on that lifestyle, when you're living in these risky situations, like, what do you do? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you supplement that? Like, when you get to recovery?
0: And not just that. So your whole family wants you to get clean. Everyone's begging you to get clean. You know you want to get clean deep down. So you make the decision to get clean. Everyone's so proud of you. Then a week goes by. A month goes by. Two months goes by. I am so fucking bored. Yeah. What the fuck do people do every day? Am I just going to sit at home (laughs) fucking working at Starbucks? Yeah. And when I'm using it, I used to be like, man, if I could just get off these drugs and get a job at Starbucks. Right. Now I have some fucking lame ass nine to five. My fucking boss talks to me like I'm a piece of shit. (laughs) Can't get any girls. (laughs) I'm fucking still depressed because my body doesn't produce serotonin. Ever. You know, I don't have any dopamine going through my system. Uh, I've ruined all my friendships, so I don't have any friends, I don't have any hobbies, and I am fucking bored as fuck. Right. And then you get a text message from an old
1: friend saying, yo, let's go. Yeah. And see, for me, part of that early in recovery, like, um, let me say this first and then I'll get into that, is that I remember times where I felt like I wanted to die or that I was on a death mission the way I was using, and it wasn't that I wanted to die, I was too scared to live. Mm-hmm. I was too scared to face myself and the things that I had did because I thought that I had done so much at 20. And the reality is, is that there's never too late or too early to get clean or want to change your life. And two, with the I remember when I first got clean and feeling bored, like what you were talking about, because you got to remember. So I get clean. I'm living in this halfway house, no license, no car. I take this job. Uh, I was at the time I was waiting tables and knew that I couldn't continue to wait tables and not get high and use because of the lifestyle that's associated. So I took this. <laughs> my first job in recovery was making seven dollars and like thirty eight cent an hour mm-hmm. because I just needed to buy new ports and put some stuff in the fridge and pay halfway rent. And I was working at icing by Claire's, uh, piercing people's ears and selling, you know, I guess well, women's or teenagers' accessories yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So that was a whole vibe back in the day, there's no more uncomfortable feeling than having to pierce someone's baby's ears and they start crying as soon as you punch the ears and you feel like everybody's looking at you like, what did you do? You're like, yo, but you paid me. You paid Uh me to pierce the, it's not me, it's you. You wanted this done. You know what I mean? So anyways, early in recovery, uh, when I would feel that boredom, I didn't realize until later on that at those times where I thought I was bored, it wasn't that I was bored. I was at peace and didn't know it. Mm -hmm. I was so used to being in risk-taking situations or in chaos and confusion that when I stopped all that and didn't have anything to supplement or replace it and wasn't engaging in those kind of behaviors, for the first time in my life, I was at peace. And it felt like being on fire. (sighs) Like death.
0: Yeah. And I I remember the first time I was like, man, I'm so bored. I'm so bored. And for anyone listening, you know, when you're getting clean, you need to expect that that's going to happen. But there's something that happens When you break through the wall, because I would get clean, get to the board stage, get to the depression and then just use and then start it all over again. But there is something that the 12 step program teaches people, and that's just to persevere and hold on. Right. Hold on, motherfucker.
1: But it's holding on through the euphoric recall. Mm -hmm. That's the people talk about relapse. Like, look, relapse is not a part of it. I don't care what people say. Relapse, re is reoccurring. Lapse is a slip of judgment. If you're having a reoccurring lapse of judgment, you just haven't stopped using Mm-hmm. It's not that you relapse. Relapse is a process. It's not an event. You're using it again. Right. I, May 27th was the first time I tried to get clean at 20 and had almost 90 days clean. And I didn't sit through when the – I didn't know that's what was happening before <laughs> recall. But like I was feeling some type of way. That's – you know I didn't have words to describe. I only knew happy, mad, and sad. So when I started feeling or if I would hear a song or if I had a certain smell and I could taste the crack in my mouth. Or I would feel that feeling of uh, euphoric recall that if I just go get this, it would take all this away, mm-hmm. you know, and felt so uncomfortable that instead of sitting through that period of time or reaching out, going to a meeting or whatever the case is, is that when I chose to go out and think, well, you know, maybe if I just drink light beer, I'll be okay. I mean, I'll have an amp style light. I'll keep it yeah. classy. I'm not going to go out and just start like buying bottles and the whole deal, although, you know, I was too broke to do that anyways. And the next thing you know, within two and a half weeks, it's six o'clock in the morning, birds chirping, how did I get here again? And Mm -hmm. it's something that you talked about earlier about like going and buying the stem and someone looking at you. I will never forget, like I was in a neighborhood that I had never been in before. I was living in this dude's kid's room, living on a a single mattress or whatever, uh, the smallest mattress you could have for a child. And I'm sleeping on this thing. And I go to go use these projects that I've never been to before. And when I get in there, it's almost like a U-shape almost. Like you're surrounded when you walk into it. And I'm asking the person to, um, you know, what I want. And dude runs up and the lady, you know, she's probably in her 40s. You know, I'm 20. And she's like, honey, what are you doing? (laughs) You do not want to be my age and still doing this. And I I swear, I looked at her I said like, yo, what the fuck are you even talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, yo, just make sure your man brings me my stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't care – that I was outnumbered. I didn't care that I was in a strange place. I didn't care, nothing. Like, you know, the disease is so, that feeling is so powerful that if like you're afraid that like, yo, if I just don't get it, but then what recovery teaches you is that like, yo, the feeling won't kill you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's learning, how do you sit through that feeling? How do you sit through what you think is boredom when you're really at peace? Mm -hmm. What are the behaviors? Because addiction, when I got clean, that was the longest relationship i had ever had. Like they talk about the the stages of grief, like the denial and anger and all that other stuff. You know, Getting away from that relationship with disease is very much the same thing. Mm-hmm. The, no, that wasn't me. Yeah. You know, that couldn't – I would have never done all that stuff. No, no, that was you. That was me all the way. Look, when I showed mom the 90-day key tag and wanted to move back in the house and the whole deal and went the key to the house and she said no, look, she was not impressed with the 90-day key tag. She had not forgotten who I was. When she would give me the stare or, like, she would smell me. And then, you know, I'd be like, I can't believe you're treating me like this. Well, Mm -hmm. what do you mean? You know what I mean? (laughs) You've had, like, 20 people in here partying it up in my house before. You know what I'm saying? So having 90 days was not a big deal when you've been using it for years. But then even more so, when I stopped using and my addiction, it's still there. Like, I started grieving. I started to grieve the Mm -hmm. addiction. Like, I remember, like, when I got clean, I got home after my first meeting And the girlfriend was like, yo, you know what you need to do. And I went to the freezer and I had a whole fifth of cap that I hadn't even cracked yet right out the freezer, ice cold. And never remember cracking the bottle and pouring it down the sink and I started tearing up. And I knew that the relationship was over Mm -hmm. and like how painful that was. Mm -hmm. And we're just talking about like pouring a bottle, you know, to anybody else who's not in recovery, that might sound like foolish, like, yo, you're a punk. You're telling me you started tearing up, pouring a bottle of liquor. But if you, that was my everything. Yeah, that addiction got me through all my hard times. Mm-hmm. It got me into relationships. It got me through this. It got me through that. It was there for me when I had this, when I was lonely, when I w- didn't feel enough, all that stuff. It really does feel like a tough breakup
0: because there's a point where like you break up with something and you're still flirting with <sighs> the idea of getting back together. Thousand percent. And there was a time where like, Probably my first year, I was still thinking about smoking crack one more time, (laughs) and I was thinking about how I was gonna do it and how much I would buy, and people would talk about it and think about it, romanticizing about drugs. It wasn't until probably like eight months, nine months, that I started to really feel like it was over, right? Because I had come too far, yeah, to go back. Because I was like, damn, if I would have used, I should have used that sixty days. Now I'm not gonna throw away nine months, right? And to combat what I was talking about is when you feel that depression and that boredom and you feel Mm -hmm. like your life is over and now you're not going to use and you don't have your identity. So for me, drugs were my identity. Mm -hmm. They were everything I knew. They were every person I hung out with. Everything about me was drug-related. And now that's over. And who am I without these drugs? And you have to reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. And now you're Brian, the guy that doesn't even drink a beer. (laughs) You know what I mean? Now I'm Brian, the guy who fucking... Says, no, I'd rather go home at nine o'clock because I don't want to stay out too late because I have to go to a meeting tomorrow and I need to call my sponsor. And now I'm becoming like this dorky, weirdo person that I don't know who I am. And it wasn't until I got like a year where I started to feel euphoric feelings Mm -hmm. because I had accomplished something I never dreamed I could accomplish. And it wasn't until I got through the wall and broke through the plateau that I was like, holy fuck if I was able to do this, what else can I do? Right. It was like, if I'm able to, it's like Spider-Man when he first discovers his power, <laughs> right. where he first like slings, <laughs> he's like, holy shit, if I right. could do this, I wonder what it's like to like, I could probably sleep from a building, you know? Perseverance. And he gets used to his new found powers and he starts to realize that like, this weird thing that happened to me isn't right. such a, maybe this is a gift, yeah. not a curse. Yeah. And now, you know, I'm, 17 years old with a year clean, 18 years old right. with 18 months clean. And I feel like I'm Superman. You know, I feel like I can accomplish anything. I can be anything. What people say about me doesn't phase me anymore right. because I've heard worse. Yeah. You really start to come in your own, but it really does take years. I think it took me like five years to really get comfortable right. with my identity as a recovering young person. Because as a young person getting clean, I just felt like such a fucking weirdo. I felt so weird being like, oh, I don't drink. Oh, why not? I was smoking crack when I was four. I feel like such a (laughs) fucking loser. (laughs) You meet a girl and they're like, oh, what do you do? And you're just like trying to tell them about yourself. And it just comes out all wrong, you know?
1: Like you've said so much uh, just in that few statements, like, you know, with the relationship piece, like, you know, like when you leave a relationship – and then like every song that you associate with that, like yo, know, throw some Joe to see or mm-hmm. some like Blackstreet if you really want to throw it all the way back, or like some Joe or whatever, you know, whatever songs you have for that particular relationship, yo, know, if you threw it on, you'll really live that relationship like right now. Mm-hmm. The same thing when I first got clean. I had to watch what kind of music I listened to because if there were certain songs that would come on, uh, CDs, radio, whatever it was at that time, all of a sudden it would click. And it would trigger, and, like, I would have that moment reliving different experiences I had while listening to that kind of music. Mm -hmm. And then, like, if there were, like, you know, like, certain smells or whatever, but in recovery, I had to start finding music that fit my recovery. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now, like, sure, I listened to a lot of stuff that I listened to back in the day, but even still now, with 17, almost 18 years clean, there's still some songs, if you catch me on the right day all of a sudden I'll start mean mugging. I'll start thinking about a whole lot of stuff that like, you know, I hadn't thought about in years and want to start acting those kind of mannerisms and the whole deal. But in recovery, I've had to find music that defined my recovery as well, which was super weird. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I remember like really getting into like, I don't even like church or I didn't at the time. And I remember (laughs) like this kid was like, Oh, you should listen to this church music. And I remember telling him like, if I put that in my car, it would burn. Thousand percent. Like I literally thousand felt percent. like I was like the antichrist, even Absolutely. with like a couple of years clean. I'm yeah. like, I'm not listening to Christian music, and this kid gave me this Christian CD of uh, Christmas Christian songs, <laughs> and bro, I bumped that shit the whole yeah. year. When I used to go to church and like hear people do the song in the beginning, I used to want to try to go late because right. I hated the music. Yeah. Now I'm like. I really like the song. Yeah. I like what it's talking about. It's talking about being reborn. It's talking about like second chances. Right. It's talking about forgiveness. Yeah. It's talking about no matter what you've done, God always uh, forgives you or whatever. And I really was like jamming to the songs. And I I love rap music. I fucking love Lil Peep. I fucking love like, you know, right. all these new rappers. 42 <laughs> right. Dog is the fucking greatest yeah. out right now, Kodak Black. And I have an, a matureness about me where I understand right. that those are entertainment and rap songs. And I don't really want to sell drugs in real life. It is what it is. But
1: going back to, so you got clean at 21. Uh, How long s- have you been clean? So I've been clean 17 years right now. So July 30th, I'll be 39. Uh, August 26th, I'll have 18 years. Gotcha. Cool. It's fucking badass. I can't wait to tell somebody that I've been clean as long as you've been alive. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's why I hang out with a bunch of 12-year-olds and tell them I've been clean (laughs) long. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. But yeah,
0: you know, it's a cool feeling being young. So what's it like being in your early 20s, getting clean, and then diving into the spiritual journey that you've dived
1: into? Because I know you're talking about like seminary school. Like where did religion take you? So it's such an interesting thing. So like, you know, growing up in a house that was very focused on Christianity – but then you would go to church and see how they acted in the building. And then you would come home, and then there's just chaos and confusion. Like, they didn't talk about that today. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, like, you would hear things about, like, yo, God loves you and all this other stuff. Oh, God loves me so much that my mother's boyfriend is beating me right now. Mm-hmm. Where's God in this? Is God going to save me from this situation? Where was God in this situation and all that other stuff? And so, then, even to take it a step further, those who are fanatics of religion, who, when you talk about addiction, it can be a taboo topic in a church setting. Mm-hmm. Like, it just is. I've been a few times, and still, when people present there, they feel as if they can't talk about their uh, hurts, habits, and hang-ups, if you will. And Which so, is the opposite. It'd be like going to a doctor and not wanting to tell them that you're sick. Getting clean at that time, like, I've always known that God has been around, because there's been many situations that I've been held at gunpoint, stuff like that, to where it was like there had to be something. I didn't know what. But I've always felt a calling on my life at an early age. You know I've always known. And so getting clean, people would say to me, you sound like a preacher. They would call me Preacher John at different times. <laughs> and there would be times where I would be sharing in different settings. Like I've shared in meetings. I've shared in prisons. I had a prison guard one time Wait for all the inmates to leave the room and then pull me to the side, uh, tearing up, saying that, you know, God has a calling on your life. You know, you should be a pastor or a preacher of a church. And it comes in cycles where that'll happen, where I'll start having people approach me randomly. Like I've had stuff happen to where hadn't been to church in years, and then I'll show up to a church setting like, oh, maybe I should just go and check it out. And I'll never forget, I walked into this church one time, sat in the wherever And the whole sermon was on how much Jesus loved John, Hmm. and that there's a difference between loving someone and favoring someone, and that like how God favored John over the – he loved all the disciples the same, but he favored John. Mm -hmm. And then he talked, like went on this whole thing about it, and I was like, oh, well, that's weird. (laughs) And so I've had these different experiences, but then also from a spiritual aspect, because at that time, early in recovery, I didn't know what I believed anymore. I knew that I didn't believe in this punishing, fanaticism, understanding that I had before I got clean. If you're struggling with spirituality, that a great book that – it was the first book that I ever read the whole way through, like an actual book book, was uh, The Celestine Prophecy. It talks about recognizing – it's a story, but the – I
0: read the beginning of it, and I couldn't – I was like, wait, is this a story? Yeah. It's a story, right? Yeah, it's a story. I read the beginning. I got to finish it. Yeah.
1: So it's a story and the, the premise is is just recognizing energy. Like you know how you'll be somewhere and you'll think like somebody will have an energy about them and you'll mm-hmm. be like god do I know them? And when you feel that like maybe you should go up and talk to them. Because maybe that energy is there for a reason and recognizing the energy that's around us in the grass, in the trees, in the air, in the the energy that all of us possess and that's around us. Mm-hmm. And knowing how to embrace or plug into that kind of energy to be one with others, be one with the universe, you know, just that really general but also simple. I tell people
0: all the time, I was like, you know, if you believe in energy, you believe in God. You know, like, just because I call it God and you call it energy doesn't mean that there are two different types of things. You know, Eckhart Tolle in in one of his books talks about, like, you ever walked into a room right after a fight and you can just feel that tension? (laughs) Right. He was like, you ever had someone that had a bad day and you, like, bump into them and you could just tell that they have, like, this really rough energy? Or someone has really good energy. And, like, science has proven that energy affects the way that fucking plants are grown. Yeah. The way you talk to a plant Changes the way it grows. Absolutely, What the fuck do you think it does to yourself yeah. and yourself? Like how important is your self-talk right. if it affects a fucking plant? Right. These are things that I learned Absolutely. in recovery because I used to think that whatever I say to myself is just between me and myself and right. who cares if I call myself a piece of shit. I don't really mean it. But at the same time, I wouldn't call a little kid a piece of shit <laughs> right. and think that it's not going to make him think that he's a piece <laughs> right. of shit. But I need to be aware of what I call myself because right. my whole life... No matter what anyone else did to me, I'm the one who's creating the most damage right. or the most positivity if I choose to change the way that I talk to myself.
1: Yeah, and look, words are powerful. Like, you know, 1,000%. Uh, from an energy standpoint, like, you know, if we just even did it from a, a very basic standpoint that the earth at its core is an energy, and then you have animals or people that we eat fruits and vegetables, grass, whatever, that's considered primary energy. And then once an animal has eaten it and we eat the animal, that's secondary. And so like, you know, when we talk about even just how you live, like how you eat, how much water you drink, diet, exercise, sleep, all that, the energy that all is like throughout that as well, like based on your eating style. That's why I know a lot of people are into the whole vegan thing and eating clean and stuff like that because of the processed foods. It's all real. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if the grass is what the other animals eat and they have energy to, like, move around and then you're eating that animal, like, again, it's not a primary source of energy. Yeah, it's, it's secondary. It's getting stomped on. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's got some cut on it. Yeah, yeah it's got some cut on it. You got to get
0: it straight from the source. So let me ask you, what's your favorite story in the Bible? Oof. Wow you consider yourself a Christian now? Are um, a spiritual
1: person that knows a lot about Christianity? Yeah. I don't know that I ever claim to be religious in any sense well, because I don't like the negative connotation that comes along with being religious. Yeah. I feel like the label puts you into a box right. that
0: separates you from people where spirituality, religion is about being inclusive. Right. Like this is whole Jesus's yeah. teaching is that you can talk to God and right. I can talk to God. You don't need to do anything to talk to God. This isn't for VIP right. members. Yeah, If you want a relationship with God, you can be homeless and have a relationship with God. You don't need to do anything else. God already loves you. You're already perfect or whatever.
1: Yeah, God doesn't love me any more today than when I was using or any of that other stuff. Just like my mother. I
0: tell people all the time, like, bro, my mom loved me when I was using, and she loves me when I was clean. And if I would have died a junkie, my mom would have been proud of me just as much as she is today. My mom was proud of me. And not everyone has that relationship with their mother, Right, but my mom— like, I say it till today, like, with 13 years clean, yeah. like, she believed in me when nobody else did.
1: Right. And the thing is, is like, you know, when you read the Bible, it, it, there's just so much to take in. Like, the Old Testament, all that, that's why it's hard to appreciate, you know, if you only have read the New Testament and Jesus and all that, then you really can't appreciate, like, the whole story because mm-hmm. the first story is so heavy. It's so much about Genesis. discipline and rules and regulation and sacrifice mm-hmm. and everything else that, you know, then you get to this place where, you know, look, Jesus comes and like, look, it's true. Jesus lived. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, you can debate that all you want, but history has proved Jesus lived and most would consider him a prophet. With Christianity, they, you know, obviously he's the son of God is how they claim it to be. And, you know, sure, there are times and instances like, if you were to go to court, you would have defendants in order to corroborate a story. And so, with the Bible, when the Bible was written, there were people that were alive mm-hmm. during that time that can corroborate. So, like, for some of the Bible, like, you know, if it wasn't true, people at that time would have been like, nah, nah, that, nah. <laughs> that You know, the walking on water, no, there was a puddle, he stepped in it, it wasn't that heavy, you're blowing that thing all the way up. Because, you know, we like tell tall mm-hmm. tales and stuff like that, you know, masters of manipulation. But there were people at that time that corroborated that story because they were alive. And then to take it a step further, you've had scientists that have went back and looked at like stars and stuff like that that are talked about during that time that corroborate the story as well. So, do I have a favorite story? I don't know. I mean, for me, it's a lot about information, mm-hmm. you know, and pulling the information out and how does that apply to my life in general? Because like we were talking about before uh, we stepped into the room. Uh, One of the books, like, As a Man Thinketh, and it's very much about how I process information and look at things and stuff like that. And when I went into seminary, I was going in there to prove it wrong. Like, I I wanted to go in and prove that this was all BS, Mm -hmm. you know, because one of the biggest struggles for me with religion is that I'm very analytical, and so I have a hard time opening my mind up to believe that there's this being that can be anywhere and everywhere all at the same time. Although, what well, we just talked about that energy is everywhere and anywhere mm-hmm. all at the same time. And then, you know, people want to debate, well, you know, how can someone live to be a thousand years old and stuff like that? And sure, I mean, I guess you could pick it apart if you want, you know, but I don't know. I wasn't around however many thousands or mm-hmm. a million years ago. So, I mean, I really can't say. For me, I don't always get caught up in the fat of the story as much as I do the meat of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because I've done so much reading and research – It's hard not to believe. And then what take it a step further is that the school that I went to, we had people from different countries that went to the same school. And then you would hear them share about stuff that if the average individual heard it, it would sound like it was made up, like it was fantasy. Mm -hmm. Where people have such a belief in countries that don't have TVs, that don't have literature. They don't have story. They don't have Harry Potter, you know, out in like, you know, the foothills of uh, Haiti Or Africa or any, you know, country where, you know, you have that kind of secluded living, they have a belief. And that belief is so strong and has been handed down for centuries, generations, whatever you want to call it, that, like, what we would think as fantasy is real. Mm -hmm. Like, they have seen, like, uh, black magic. I've heard people's stories of stuff that they've seen and witnessed that they're like, look, to you, I'm sure this sounds made up, but this is something that I've seen Because it goes back to energy that when you harness a certain kind of energy, whether it's positive or negative, I mean, look, even in Asian philosophy, because there was a girl uh, at the office the other day watching The Airbender Mm -hmm. and like, you know, how they could, the the chi, your chi and how you could learn how to channel the energy around you to push objects, push people, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Like all that, I believe in all that. Like, I believe all of that is real, but is whether or not your belief system, you can open your mind up enough to believe in that, but we're so distorted with movies, TV, and everything else that our belief system is limited based on what we see as fantasy mm-hmm. versus what is real. So to read different stories, regardless of the book, especially if you're analytical like me, it's hard for me to believe that something like that could really happen. Mm-hmm. But then to hear stories from other people, like- I've seen X. I I couldn't even tell you a good story right now. Mm -hmm. But at that time when I was in school and I would have these people be like, this is real. Like to watch someone do some of the stuff that has happened here is not that Mm far-fetched. So, you know, it's a lot to take in. Um, Yeah,
0: and I know for me, like, you know, when I used to go to church, I would go and I would just think about all the reasons why the story wasn't true. Right. And I was focused on, well, how could you live in a fucking whale You know what I mean? Like, how could uh, someone come back from the dead? Or I heard it was low tide when he parted the seas. And I've learned to not focus on those things. And it's not being naive or dumbing yourself down. It's focusing on what am I going to listen to that's going to benefit me to live a more loving, kind, connected life with other people and to feel closer to other people as opposed to feel exclusivity or separation. So for me, when I hear the story of like the guy who was running away from a job that God had him do and he got swallowed up by a whale and then ended up in the same place he was running from, I could see that the message right. is that you can't run away from a calling that the universe is telling you about. 100%. Because whether you go here or you go there, there's something inside of us that pulls us to God right. or to the universe yep. or whatever. And it's not so much about the story as opposed to the message and the principle behind right. it. For me, when I go to church and I hear stories, I start to hear the message of, like, forgiveness and yeah. and love and compassion. The most popular guy on the planet, Jesus Christ, the king himself, walks around in fucking homeless people clothes. <laughs> right. This guy doesn't fucking <laughs> right. own anything. Right? He fucking devotes his life. Yeah. He walks around barefoot, Right? hangs out with the prostitutes and the lepers and, like, sick people right. and all this stuff. And he's supposed to be the most holy of the holiest. Right. So when I hear stories about Jesus, I really hear about it in a way of there was the guy who could have been a king, right. could have lived in a giant castle yeah. and had a million cars right. and all these things, and chose to spend most of his time with people that were outcasted. Right. And as someone who smoked crack for most of their young adult life, yeah, yeah. I felt like that story meant that. No matter where I was in life, that there was some type of good energy out there right. that loved me the same way as anybody else. And I might fall into the trap of collecting material things right. or chasing all these other things. But there's still a principle Absolutely. that I get from a storytelling of the Bible. And it makes me appreciate other cultures. A thousand percent. Like, uh, you know, Buddhism or Islam or whatever, yeah. you know.
1: You know, like the Old Testament is about man seeking God. By the time you get to the New Testament, we start to find out that God has been seeking the relationship the whole time. Mm-hmm. Hence why, you know, Jesus came, walked around the whole deal, and then ostracized what we would call, as, you know, in the Bible, Pharisees, which were high-ranking church officials <laughs> that, like, you know, it was their way or the highway. And because of that, it lends its hand to, like I said, the fanaticism. That's not what the belief is about. The belief is about, like, each one teach one. That's why when I see NA members who come into recovery, they get a few years clean, they start going to church, they get all gassed up off the spirituality, and then they leave on a religious zeal. Mm -hmm. There's no judgment in that. But when I see them and I ask them, oh, how come you don't come around? Well, you know, because, you know, those people or whatever. And I'm like, all right, well, how many people do you sponsor a church? And they're Mm -hmm. like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, what do you mean? What do I mean? I was like, have you not read the Bible? Like, oh yeah, I mean, I go to church, and I'm like, all right. Well, I mean, I read the Bible, and it said that after you read and learn the Bible, that you're supposed to go and teach others, Mm -hmm. which is what we do in recovery. Is that like we do step work, and then we teach other people recovery principles so that it benefits them in their life to have a new way of life. Mm -hmm. But then here you are saying you need to get away from those people, but it's the very same principles in the book. That once you've learned the literature that you're supposed to teach somebody else because how can you live something that you don't know?
0: And every religion does this. So like when I was uh, on my 11th step, one of my assignments was to get familiar with other religions and Buddhism. When you become enlightened, your goal is to enlighten others. And it's very much like the 12-step program where it's like you work all 11 just to get the 12 so you can give it to somebody else. Correct. In Christianity, they do this, but it's, like, more of, like, recruiting right. type of thing where I need to save you or whatever. <laughs> dude, I go to a very strange, intimate, cool church that's yeah. very open-minded. And I remember, like, dude, I love my pastor. Right. He's the coolest guy in the freaking world. Yeah. And when I was talking to him, I was very scared to tell him that yeah. I don't know if I'm, like, a real Christian. Right. And this one day, I thought he was going to, like, convert me. Yeah. And I was like, bro, I don't know if... Uh, like I love Christianity and I love like God right. and all this stuff, but I don't think I'm like a Christian yeah. and I don't think I want to be. Right. And he kept walking and he looked at me and he tapped me on the shoulder and go, It's okay, bro. I love you. And he just kept walking. And here I was thinking this fear that he was going to be like, well, let me explain to you why you need to be a Christian right. and why all the other religions are bullshit. Yeah. And instead he was just like, it's cool, bro. I love you so much. Right. And that's gave me more interest in Christianity right. and gave me more interest in following him right. until today. I need to remember myself. Is that sometimes I could be like that with recovery? Right. I have people who can't stay clean, and I'm over here like, you got to work steps, you got to do this. Right. I can get very vocal about my belief right. and right. very uh, imposing on how I think people need to stay clean. And I need to take a look at that and slow down and realize that you know it's
1: attraction not promotion. A thousand percent. So funny enough, when it comes to the church, Christianity stuff like that. Much like recovery, it wasn't that any people sought me out. Mm -hmm. It's just that one day I was given the gift of desperation. And after I was given the gift of desperation, then there was some work required in order to have certain attributes, if you will. Christianity is the same thing. People think that, like, you go to church, you get baptized, yo, you're good. Uh, I hate to break the news. You being baptized does not make you baptized. I hate (laughs) to break that (laughs) news to everybody on the podcast. That's just a physical outward expression of you dedicating your life. And that's nothing more than you being dunked in water. It's a showing. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not you're baptized in the Spirit, that's a whole nother conversation that we don't even have time to get into because there's baptism of water, baptism of the Spirit, baptism by fire. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many things that I've learned, uh, you know, going to college and studying or whatever That people think that it's as simple as, well, I just show up, I get dunked in water, and like, I'm good. Well, that's actually not how it works. Or better than everyone else. Right. You think that's like, that's like saying you go to a meeting, you drink a cup of coffee, and you've been baptized in the coffee. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden, you're a blessed recovering actor. Or you get a white key tag, (laughs) and that's it, you're cured, you know?
0: (laughs) Which goes to the point of like, People look at addicts like, oh, well, why do you still got to go to those meetings? It's like, bro, Christians still go to church. 100%. You know what I mean? I'm still learning. I'm still checking. Accountability. Account, yeah, I'm being accountable. Yeah. I'm showing up for the people that are just showing right. up.
1: That's a form of service. I'm not cured. Yeah, people don't go to church thinking they're going to go prostitute afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> some <laughs> like, might. Some right, might. right. I'm not saying it <laughs> yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah. I'm just saying, but it's the same principle. Like, mm-hmm. I still show up to NA meetings not because I think I'm going to go use. Yeah. But I don't want to question whether or not I'm going to put myself in a position to use.
0: And there's something honorable about discipline. A thousand percent is that you know I used to think people were crazy pray five times a day you yeah. do all this stuff for church. Now I'm like, wow, it's pretty badass that you consistently been able to be disciplined. In something you believe in. Yeah. And there's like something really beneficial that happens to your spirit. When you set to do something and you say, when you start to do what you say you're going to do, you start to believe that if you say you're going to do something, you are able to do it. Right. And it reaffirms this belief that you can do anything.
1: Look, that's just like when I was working in treatment, um, I used to work in a nonprofit center with people coming straight out of federal prison jail that could get their sentence modified if they came to treatment. And during that time, I would talk to a lot of them about what they believed. Mm -hmm. You know, they would claim to be Muslim. I'd be like, well, why? And one of the things that I appreciated was the dedication of, you know, they would make a Salat, which is their prayer that they would make. I can't remember how many times in a day it was, but just like you said, the discipline, right. The discipline of that, you know, and where they had to do it and stuff like that those who practice Buddhism and, like, you know, the sacrificing um, of one's desires at times, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Because, like, you know, embodying the God within and stuff like that, most religions are all the same. Mm -hmm. There's only, like, maybe 2% or whatever percentage you would say that is different about all of them that makes them that different. And why would I argue about the fat of that versus Mm -hmm. the meat of all of it? You know what I'm saying? Because generally, all of them are a good principle in that sense. That's just, like, It's unfortunate that even in church, how you have fanatics, you can find fanatics in recovery as well. Mm -hmm. And then wonder why people don't want to stay clean or get clean because you're on top of them because they dropped a sober bomb or they identify as an addict in the wrong meeting. And the reality is, is maybe they just need to be spoken to and educated. Mm -hmm. For like most of the stuff that I've experienced in life or most of the hangups that I've experienced is a lack of information. Like I remember thinking growing up, Based on commercials, TV, and radio, uh, radio, press, and film, that partying, drinking, and using drugs was the lifestyle. Like, name brand clothes. That means you are well off and all that other stuff. Like, that was so misinformed. Like, I realized that, like, you some rich guys that are beyond millionaires, you know, Mm -hmm. they dress like they're homeless.
0: 1,000%. You know
1: what I'm saying? But then there's other people that enjoy that lifestyle because it's just what they enjoy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter. And then I didn't realize that I could have a wild life not using drugs, Mm -hmm. you know. It was just – I was misinformed by misinformed people creating this illusion and fantasy that can also be created in any setting, not even in uh, life. But when we get to recovery, like somehow you get here and that everything fades away and you're automatically okay. No, just because I got clean doesn't exempt me from having to walk through painful situations, just because I believe in God doesn't mean that bad things don't happen. Like when people die or something bad in the world happens, if you're like, oh, there's no God. Why would God let that happen? And it's like. I believe that well, my whole life growing up. thousand percent. And the reality is we're all broken.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We all have fractured spirits. You know what I'm saying? Like we're all learning how to deal with our humanness. And so when bad things happen, you know, sometimes there's just bad people in the world, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And to try to stop all that at any given time is much for anybody, let alone, you know, this ultimate being. But then it's also a reminder of how aware we should be of everybody around us. Mm -hmm. Like some of those people, yo, what if somebody would have walked up and gave them a hug that day and said, hey, I was just checking in to see how you were doing? Mm -hmm. Because, see, back in the day, the other thing that a lot of people don't talk about is look at the neighborhood you live in right now. How many people on that block have been in the same house? For 30 years. And how many people on that block all have been there for 30 years? And how many of their children live in houses around that? Because way back in the day, that was the thing. Mm-hmm. And because you knew everybody, if something was going on, somebody would tell somebody and y'all would go over there or whatever would happen, or you would know they were just having a moment versus now we're all transplanting. We're so caught up on this independent— I don't even talk to my neighbors. <laughs> right. It's this non-communal life that we live in because we've pushed this independent movement for so long that people are transplaying all over the place. And now because we have social media, why would I talk to the neighbor when I can just text message or get online and Facebook somebody? Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes back to like in counseling what we were talking about is that we've become so non-communal due to this new technology That we don't know how to have face-to-face conversations with people. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to have real conversations because of the fear of the reaction we'll get. Because when we're online. There's no reaction. We can be whoever we want to be. We can say whatever we want because they're not in front of us. Mm -hmm. And so it creates this illusion and ego that doesn't exist except for when you're on that phone. How many
0: times if someone said something, you're like, that person would not say that shit to my <laughs> right. face. I see
1: that person every
0: Friday. They right. don't say shit to me. Right. You know, I just want to close with this, you know. So as a kid, I didn't believe God was real because I saw this commercial of starving kids in Africa. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, how could God be real if there's children starving? And as I got older, I just saw more fucked up shit. Like, kids get cancer, people get shot, innocent people go to jail, right. guilty people become millionaires, yeah. like... Like, you're talking about judgment and justice and, like, God is going to be there. Like, dude, he's not fucking there. Like, it's not real. When people tell me that now, I kind of laugh because since I had a year clean, I've never questioned whether, like, God was real or not. Like, I just believe that God is real through prayer and my own experiences and how I felt. And it's changed me internally that I don't even care what happens externally because I know what happened to me. Now I kind of have this idea that God is a spiritual thing and he changes spiritual things. Right. So just because a child dies, not to say that God is like a person, but if it was a person, when a child dies, God cries. Right. You know what I mean? Like God does feel sad or whatever right. type of energy. He doesn't want that to happen, yeah. but it is not his job to extinguish pain and misery right. and stuff like that. But when I see someone that could have murdered somebody and through his belief in God, prayed, thought about it, installed the pause button, and chose not to kill somebody, that is God working as opposed to God jumping in front of the bullet and stopping the bullet. Right. Where God works on the inside, not so much of the external things. And you know what? When someone goes to jail... There are people in jail that have more freedom because they have a relationship with some type of higher power that have experienced true freedom. You know, like I interviewed this guy, John Huffington, and this guy did 32 years in prison. And you're like, bro, how are you not resentful? Mm -hmm. How are you not angry? And the guy told me, would you have me on the show if I was an angry, resentful guy? And I was just like, wow. He says that he believes. He doesn't even believe in God. (laughs) This guy doesn't even believe. And you would think that for someone to experience that, he has to believe. He doesn't even believe in God, but he believes That maybe he was locked up so that way he can help all these other people and he Mm. had some type of calling and he dedicated his life to helping other people that were wrongfully convicted. So I believe that through energy, you can take the worst thing that happened to you and turn it into a good thing and that those bad things didn't happen. What change would we see in human if it was just like all – if this was just like – like this isn't meant to be heaven. Yeah.
1: This is the place before heaven if you believe in heaven. But let me ask you this. How would society function – riddle me this. What if the news went from emphasizing all the bad things that happen in life and instead they started emphasizing the person that was out to sea for 40 days Mm -hmm. and somehow lived? Mm -hmm. The kid who had uncurable cancer that they cured. Mm -hmm. The person that should have been dead somehow lived. Mm -hmm. Too many times what I've come to find out is that we'll minimize the miracles that happen every day around us. But then the one tragic event that happens. Oh, blame God. thousand percent. Mm -hmm. But then we minimize the miracles that happen every day around us that there's no scientific proof that that should have happened.
0: The fact that I'm on this fucking planet right now <laughs> yeah. like some of them like bro we're on right. a fucking blue sphere floating in space spinning at a 1000 miles an hour yeah. bro if the axis of the earth switched by like point millimeter whatever it is like right. we'd all be on fire yeah, you know what about i mean it. Right. like the way that the world tilts on this axis yeah. and that if that was just a little off the place would either be fucking a frozen tundra or on fire it's like and some people could say that that's just random and chance right. Maybe it is random. Yeah. But what is the chance that we're both on this random experience by itself? And it makes me feel better knowing that uh, there's some type of reason for it. Right. Or I give it some type of reason for it because I could just live my life and say, oh, well, it's just a coincidence. Or I could say, like, this is what the Buddhists believe. The Buddhists believe that if you are a human being. Right you must have done something so amazing in your past life because you could have been born yeah. a fucking rock. You could have been born right. a fucking ant or whatever. And that the human is the most highest level on the earth that you could be. So you must have done something so good in your past life to get to this. Right. So it's not about whether or not I believe in reincarnation. Yeah, It's that, do I live my life thinking that I need to take advantage of this because it doesn't happen often.
1: Right. Are you a spiritual being having a human experience? Are you a human being having a spiritual experience? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. It's
0: good having you, man. It's good to see you. It's been a great conversation. Appreciate you having me. Love you, bro. Yeah, love you too. Bye. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.